Sure, anything programmers ignore is probably evidence. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by CodeChip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time you test pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeChip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free continuous delivery, check them out at CodeChip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 184 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. David Brady. Today I'll be providing an even mixture of computer science folk medicine and unrefuted hypotheses based on personal observation. Jessica Kerr. Hello from St. Louis. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick reminder, go check out jsremoteconf.com if you want to learn cool JavaScript stuff online, live. Anyway, uh, we also have two special guests this week. Uh, We have Greg Wilson. G'day. And is it Andreas Stefik? That's me. Uh, do you guys want to introduce yourselves really quick? Sure, Andreas, go. Uh, sure, I'm a uh, assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, I study the science of programming languages in the context of how do programming languages impact people or communities, or we test a lot of, I guess you should say, old myths in programming language design. And for the last 16 years, I've been teaching scientists the basics of programming, and about halfway through that, realized I really ought to start teaching programmers the basics of science. So that's part of what Andreas and I will be ranting about today. Boom. So you put the coding into science and the science into coding? Absolutely. You're like the Reese's peanut butter commercial. (laughs) (laughs) You got coding on my science! (laughs) You got science in my coding! (laughs) The, The difference is... Scientists are willing to pay attention when you go and teach them version control. Most programmers stick their fingers in their ears and say, la, 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 I can't hear you. XP, when you say, let's look at evidence. (laughs) I'm really excited to have you on the show because I watched your talk, and you're here kind of to talk to us about the theory of science, which I am hugely excited about. So let's dive straight into that. 
Well, let me ask the panel a question. Do you believe that geographic separation between members of a development team has any impact on the quality of their work? So I'm going to feel really we, dumb at the end of this episode. Okay. So <laughs> here's where we find out who's watched the video and who hasn't. <laughs> so the, the theory is you've got to stick everybody in one room so they can communicate. Well, during the construction of Windows Vista, Microsoft collected huge reams of digital data, not just every change to the code and every test that was run and every compiled failure, but every meeting that took place, every message that was sent, every phone call that was scheduled, you know, the whole thing. And then they threw a bunch of machine learning algorithms at it and said, what can we find in here that correlates with quality? I mean, we're looking for predictors of bugs per DLL shipped because there's a good metric. You know, how many faults were there per module in the code we sent off to our customers? And it turns out that geography doesn't really matter. It turns out there is something that matters a whole lot more, and that's how far apart the developers are in the org chart. The higher you have to go to find a common parent in the org chart who can resolve disputes or just tell them what the project's actually about, the worse the software is. And once you hear that, you're not surprised. So where I work at Outpace, wow. we're all remote. All the developers are remote. So we sort of embody the outcome of that research. But also we have a relatively flat org chart. What I liked, Greg, about in the talk when you mentioned the distance in the org chart being an indicator of more bugs, the org chart is a proxy for goal alignment. Yep. That's something we work really hard at Outpace is making sure we all share the same goals. Absolutely. And once you hear this result, as a programmer, you go, aha, it's a management problem. And you're happy to <laughs> accept it. Now, in the same book where we report on that, okay, there's a meta-study compiling all of the evidence that we had in 2010 about test-driven development. And it turns out that on balance, there is no evidence that it has any impact up or down on the quality of software or the speed with which it's produced. La, 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 I can't hear you. Right. <laughs> okay, so TDD is dead. We, there we no, have no, our no. answer. No. Well, well, <laughs> well, well. No, no, TDD is no more alive nor more dead, right? Oh, great. Now it's undead. Schrodinger's uh, I'm fine with that. Schrodinger's TDD. So <laughs> the reaction I get when I give this talk is really interesting. If you say, here's some evidence that confirms that it's management's fault, every program in the room will go, excellent. If you say, here's something that is now, you know, part of the catechism of programming, you know, you, this is something you're supposed to believe, and you say, actually, the evidence doesn't support it, doesn't contradict it either, the reaction isn't, huh, let me go and have a look at those studies because that doesn't jibe with my experience. Maybe there's mm -hmm. a fault in the study. Maybe you're measuring the wrong things. No, the reaction is, well, you have to be wrong. That can't be yeah. right because I know X. My dad is in his 80s and flat out does not believe that smoking causes cancer because he smoked two packs a day since he was 14, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have cancer. Therefore, mm -hmm. smoking doesn't cause cancer. Now, Oh, that is so interesting because it's so dangerous. Ab it didn't absolutely. cause cancer in him. The system worked for him. What's the problem? Right. Exactly. Right. And, and, and Richard Stallman has RSI. Therefore, Emacs causes RSI because its inventor has RSI. Sure. And Andreas... Talk about what happened when your first study saying that a randomly designed language was just as hard or easy to learn as Perl mm. got on the <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, and you guys no. have to hear this. This is good. Go ahead, uh, Andreas. Walk them through what happened, the study, and then what happened afterwards. Sure. So, as I said, oftentimes we try to analyze how programming languages impact human beings. 
And this actually came about from a totally different purpose, actually. We were working with a bunch of blind children because in the United States, there was effectively no program for blind kids to learn programming. But what we noticed was that traditional languages like C or Java or these sort of tools were actually really hard to use when you had to listen to them through audio. So you might have to hear, literally hear, four left paren, and thigh equals zero, semicolon, I less than 10, semicolon, I plus plus, right paren, left brace, which is a pain in the ass. So it just, right. it's just hard to hear. So we thought, well, maybe that's true for the blind, but I'm curious whether if we just took typical people that can see just fine and we ran a test, what would be the impact on comprehension or accuracy or productivity or anything of the above? So we designed an accuracy study and we thought, well, if we're going to do a study, we should probably have some kind of a control group, some kind, you know, just standard science, right? Like since the late 1700s, typical procedure is to use a control group. And so what we thought is, well, I don't know what a control group would be for programming languages. So let's see if we can come up with the concept of placebo. So we, we took a programming language. We took Quorum, which is the language that I've designed. We ripped out all the tokens or a large majority of the tokens. And then we sat around the lab predominantly laughing our asses off, rolling dice, and then replacing the characters with random symbols. Right? <laughs> now, the purpose was we thought, well, maybe this placebo will give us some kind of a baseline. Like if a programming language, if a human uses that language four times better than a randomly t- designed language, maybe that gives us a baseline against something really bad. Right. But then we ran the study. And dum, it turned dum, out, dum. Yeah. <laughs> We ran the experiment, and to our surprise, we found that people using Perl could not do so any better than a language that we sat around rolling dice. Wow. And that surprised us a lot. But what would surprise us even more is that the moment that it got on Slashdot, my students and I started getting a tremendous amount of hate mail. And this really hasn't ebbed much since that time. Wow. Uh, for example, we put out another paper which contains evidence related to a lot of studies we run just a few weeks ago, only to get an email not that long ago that said I was starting a language eugenics program, then I was no better than Hitler or Sauron, apparently. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, mean, I love how they put were, them on the same level. Maybe they were joking, but my German colleague didn't think it was that funny, given the history, but, you know. Oh, wow. Neither did the hobbits. Yeah. <laughs> but so, uh, you know. I, I just want to know, uh, Andreas, I want to know how many Google Summer of Code projects were proposed in Quorum after you released your findings. Oh, well, we didn't propose any. I mean, we're... Uh, no, I mean, how many people picked it up, the, wanted to actually said, oh, I want to learn that language? No. Nope. Probably uh, none, I would imagine. Right. So, because I would because... disagree with you just on the grounds that languages like brain F star C K and be and befunge are deliberately written to be hard to learn and hard to compile. And Brain F Brain F uh, has been ported like to every language out there. I've written a Brain F to Ruby <laughs> compiler. So, we exist. I... We are sick people. Yeah. Well, exactly. But, we don't pick a problem because it's easy. But, we pick a problem right. for its technical difficulty. Yeah. But it comes um, back. It comes back to something that I first heard from my father that he attributed to Winston Churchill. But the quote goes back much longer. I've, I've still not traced this one down to its roots. Most people would rather fail than change. Mm-hmm. That, given oh, the, given wow. the choice between changing your beliefs about something or continuing to burn 140 calories an hour, banging your head against a wall, and yes, that yeah. study has been done, and that is the number. 
right? Wow. Then most people would rather fabricate an excuse to justify all the pain they went through to get this far. It's like a hazing ritual. You have to say it builds character because otherwise it was just pointless misery. And you can't admit that to yourself. And I've given a talk several times now asking people who are software engineering researchers who teach software engineering classes at colleges and universities why we don't rebuild that standard intro to software engineering class along more useful lines. I mean, right now what happens is you take your intro to software engineering and there's a group project in groups of typically four to six and you have to drop a requirement spec and then you have to you know do an implementation plan and you probably have to draw some UML diagrams and all those things that nobody ever actually does in that order in the real world. Yeah, exactly. Right? And mm-hmm. if you're forward thinking, you say, no, we're going to be agile and we're just going to do this in sprints. Both are fictions. As one of my students yeah. explained to me several years ago, she always left everything until the last moment because that was the only rational choice. If you've got five bosses, five professors who don't talk to each other about deadlines and due dates, then the only sensible thing is to wait until the last possible moment when the professor has run out of energy and isn't going to fix the assignment spec again under right. your feet. Right? So they lie to us. When we say, you know, track your hours and show that you did a few hours every day because we're supposed to be emulating you know, extreme programming or scrum or something like that. They just make stuff up. And we know that. And we pretend. It's kind of realistic, though. It is. But what we could do instead is have a software engineering course where the very first assignment looks something like this. Here is a Git repo for a Java project that's had 2,000 commits and is now about 20,000 lines long. And over here is the bug tracker showing where bugs were found over the lifetime of those 2,000 commits. Hypothesis. Short methods are more likely to have bugs per line. They're going to have a higher bug per line count than long methods. Really? Go and I prove or disprove. Well, I don't know if that's true or not. What I want you to do is go off and look at the data we've just given you for this one project and tell me if it's true. Now, think about what you have to do in order to answer that question. You have to learn some code analysis tools. You mm-hmm. have to decide how you're going to measure the length of a method, is it lines or is it lines of source code? Is it number of semicolons? I mean, there's a bunch of ways to do that. You have to decide how you're going to contribute bugs to particular methods. You have to do science. You have to take this fuzzy idea that sounds interesting, and you have to operationalize it and come up with a particular experiment, which might be different from the one that your colleagues come up with. And you might come up with different answers because you're actually measuring different things. But would you hire a programmer whose first instinct was to go off and say, hmm, I wonder if this is true. Let me pull together some data and I can answer the question. Hell yes. That mm-hmm. would be better than where we are now. That's what engineers do, is go and gather data, measure a few things, and then say, well, you know, maybe this doesn't apply everywhere and at all times, but at least now we have some kind of pointer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm bitterly disappointed that the people designing Go and Rust and Julia Dart. and Dart have just ignored the techniques that Andreas and his team have developed. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you believe the answers or not. He's shown that you can actually go and measure these things and get a better language as a result. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Greg, you have just touched on the one magic question that I wanted to ask you in this call. And I was going to save it to the end, but I'd like to throw it out at the beginning and see if we can just weave it through the whole call. 
because I think it's, it's kind of what you're on about here. How can I do science? I literally mean, can I, as a college dropout, can I do studies and get them published? Or do I have to find a grad student and a PhD candidate or whatever? I guess that's the same thing. Or some professor and convince them to spend their underfunded, overbudgeted time studying my pet project, which none of them want to do. I have a thousand questions that I would love to gather evidence on, and I'm just convinced that I'm going to write something up just completely filled with biases and incorrect assumptions and that sort of thing. Can I learn to design experiments and do science and gather this evidence? Absolutely. There are hundreds of thousands of amateur scientists in the United States right now doing real work, most of them with tenured faculty, but not all of them. Some, some, I mean, Rachel Carson changed the world. She didn't have a degree. She just went out there and started doing the science. There, are, You know, you can think of thousands of people who have gone out and said, I can measure things, I can count things. Andreas, how many times have you not run a study because you couldn't round up enough programmers? Well, in my case, never, because I work really hard to make sure I get them. Okay. How many of your colleagues have never run a study because they couldn't round up enough programmers? That would be probably all of them. Okay. So right there <laughs> is something that a community like this can do, right? In the same way that public health research relies on having people <clears throat> in the community who will go out and ask questions, go door to door and, you know, here's the questionnaire, can you fill it in? Or go and interview people. Mm -hmm. We can teach you how to do this and you don't have to wait for us. You can go and start asking questions about your personal history by logging through your repos on GitHub, the bug yeah. trackers you use. Um, Tavish Armstrong, uh, who at the time was a student at Concordia, he's now down in California, just started asking some of these questions. When does he commit and, are, you know, is he more likely to commit bugs on a Friday yeah. afternoon than on a Thursday morning? You can do yeah. that. And who cares if it gets published academically? Yeah. You'll be listened to. So the other thing, the other thing you got to remember here too is that Greg didn't mention it, maybe because he's being more political than, than I am. But in fact, the academia aspect of the science here is actually in, has significant problems. So let, let me give you a few examples. In 1996, there was a paper, an excellent paper by Walter Tickey, mm. where he talked about the, the nature of science and software engineering. And he found very strong evidence that software engineers were simply not using evidence, even in academia. Now, think about that for a second. If you as an individual want to publish a paper at an academic conference, and you know with some level of certainty, given the evidence from Walter Tickey and actually later work by Andy Coe, and also we've shown it in the language design community as well, if you know that they're not using evidence, what purpose is there even of publishing in those venues for an individual person? Right. For example, let me give you one very <laughs> specific example that I like. You're all familiar with functional programming, I assume, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. So there's a conference, a very famous conference called the International Conference on Functional Programming. In there, We've actually read and tracked formally every single paper they have ever written. Out of that entire academic history, Guess how many of those papers actually investigated the impact of those features on human beings? Zero. That would be two, Oops. and neither had a control group. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, wow. I want to be clear about that. Whenever you hear of functional programming language features being added to a new language, I want you to remember, 
every single paper in their entire history at the top academic conference. That's because functional papers are immutable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, you know, I am normally a peace man, but you are you are disturbing my calm. <laughs> I just threw a link into the chat area of the Skype call to uh, a thing that Tavish Armstrong threw together on a Friday night, right? Because Fernando Perez, who's one of the creators of IPython, said eight minutes from bug on my box to reviewed emerged PR, and that got Tavish an undergrad at a school over in Montreal, thinking, how long does it usually take to do a review on the IPython project? So he answered the question. Right? So flip over to that link and look, here's how you do it. You import a bunch of tools. Well, we understand data analysis. I mean, we kind of invented that. And then you turn the Git log into some JSON, and then you go and you do some stats, and you've got the distribution. It's like, oh, this is how long it takes. And notice that there are some spikes. Right? Okay, anybody can do this, and I think this is what engineering looks like. You know, I trained as an engineer originally. I switched over to programming because I'm very clumsy. I, there was actually an afternoon in 1982 when I picked up a soldering iron the wrong way around twice in the space of an hour. And I still have the scar on my right hand, and the second time I had the hand under the cold water tap, the lab tech came over and said, Greg, have you thought about the programming option <laughs> probably saved my life right because the next term was the power transmission course with the 50,000 volt transformers yes. and I wouldn't be here but, <laughs> but Greg, can we be spiritual brothers if I tell you that I got into software after I flipped uh, molten solder into my eye ouch okay you win okay well no <laughs> honestly I think burning my hand on the iron was about as bad yeah so the, the whole thing that makes engineering different from the craft that came before it is that engineers go off and measure things right they build their tables they understand strengths of materials the romans knew a whole lot about the strength of concrete some of their structures are standing 2500 years later but they also had a lot fall down and once engineers started adopting calculus and the experimental method in the early 1800s first in germany and then in france and the uk Things stopped falling down as often. And, you know, there's a reason why we can build big chemical plants. There's a reason why the power transmission grid mostly works. It's applied science. It's science with a purpose rather than science for the sake of curiosity. Mm -hmm. And software engineering, by that metric, isn't an engineering discipline, but it could be. We now have the data that they didn't have 30 years ago. SourceForge revolutionized the study of software development because for the very first time there's a huge amount of information admittedly from a rather odd community but there's a huge amount of information out there in the open and now anybody who wants to can go and do things like you know look at how long it takes to close a, an issue compared to the size of the eventual patch and see if there's a correlation are bigger fixes slower to land are security fixes faster or slower? Here's another interesting thing. So until recently, I was working at Mozilla. So they've shifted to a much shorter release cycle for Firefox. They're now on a six-week cycle. And what they have found is that it reduces the number of bugs that get shipped that cause Firefox to absolutely crash. Okay, that's interesting. But what's really interesting is when Firefox crashes, it does so quicker after launch than it used to. 
mm. even normalizing for speed of machine. And we have no idea why. So from an engineering standpoint, agile short cycles reduces the mean time between failures. This is a very bad thing, right? Well, is it? I mean, we uh, put I'm, I'm yanking. I'm yanking your chain, dude. No, no. <laughs> but, but the thing is, we've got data that we didn't used to have. Yeah. Right, and we're not training future programmers to think in terms of data. Here's yeah. here's a scary stat. Just doing a lap around the table. Well, let me ask David. David, what did you do before you were a programmer? Uh, I was a grade school student. Okay, so you went straight from that to this? I've loved this field ever since day one. I've done retail jobs and yep. you know, you know, that kind of stuff, sure. Okay, what about Charles? Before I was a programmer, yeah, I did QA, and before that I ran a tech support department, and before that I did IT. Okay, and Jessica? I was a physics major, Okay. straight from undergrad into programming, and I will say that the scientific method that was a large focus of the physics curriculum has helped me tremendously in programming. I haven't done any aggregate level studies, but just the individual experiments that is any sort of debugging, yep. uh, the scientific method has helped tremendously with that. But it's helped in another way. When you did your undergrad in physics, how many lab experiments did you do over the course hmm. of four years? If you count the little ones, then a couple dozen. At least, right? A biology program in Canada cannot stay accredited if there aren't at least six hours of lab work per week over the course of four years. So by the time you finish a four-year bio degree, you've done dozens of experiments. The computer science student who shares an apartment with that biologist will do, on average, one experiment in four years. Yeah, It's probably in the operating systems course where she probably collects a bit of performance data, throws away the outliers, takes an average, and pretends that means something. Yep. If she does the wow. human-computer interaction course, she might do a second experiment on something like eye-hand coordination or color perception. Maybe. Right? Yeah. Maybe. But, but so both of those experiments will be to replicate existing experiments in the textbook, correct? Right, which is true of most undergrad physics as well. Okay. Yeah, right? yeah I saw that in my computer and electrical engineering courses as well. Yeah. So people spill out of college and university trained in computer science, hopefully knowing how to program without the direct experience of constructing a model constructing an experiment to test it, gathering the data, analyzing the data. And that's exactly what we want them to do when they're doing performance engineering on a cluster. It's exactly what we wish they were doing on their own development processes and on their code. Are there features in programming languages that are more likely to cause or be correlated with, I should be careful, more likely to be correlated with gnarly bugs? The answer in our, I mean, our gut tells us yes. But I bet we wouldn't agree on which ones. Right. But we can go, we've got that data. Does well, you garbage collection reduce the number of bugs in programs? I mean, we all know what it's like to manually manage memory in C and C++. Are there fewer bugs in code when you start having the machine manage it? I have never seen any data that proves one way or the other. One thing that I think is important to say with this, too, is that whenever I give talks on the science of programming language, by the way, I should say, before I say that, I think Greg is spot on. I mean, one of the biggest problems here is definitely academia isn't really teaching computer scientists the scientific method, which involves experimentation. But mm -hmm. but anyway, what I was going to say is that I think there's another issue to think about here besides uh, simply issues like bugs. One thing that is hard to learn from source code repositories 
is you can learn things like bug reports and figure out correlative uh, information that way. But in some cases, there are certain types of people that you can't gather information on that way. For example, in the UK right now, Simon Peyton Jones, one of the, uh, the mm-hmm. people at Cambridge, is starting a program because the UK is now essentially mandating that computer science be taught to children. And this, to the best of my knowledge, this is children ages 6 to 17 right now. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, we might say, well, these are just children. They're not you know, they're not professionals, maybe we don't care about them. But I think that would be a little bit naive because this generation that's coming up in the UK is going to beat the pants off anybody taught in the United States because they'll have 11 years of programming experience. But the thing is, though, is if we have these students using programming languages, the question then is, which ones and what is the actual impact on 7-year-olds, on 12-year-olds? What about 13-year-olds? What, are there differences? What about a child that can't read using Scratch? Does that provide transfer of learning to a programming language? And if so, which ones and under which conditions does that matter? Right. In and other words, I... Th- oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, and people like Mark Guzdile. At, yeah. You know, Mark Guzdile and Barbara Erickson at Georgia Tech, the Scratch group at MIT, they have done so much high-quality work on exactly these questions. Over the course of, what is it now, 15 or 16 years that Mark and Barbara have been at Georgia Tech, right? Mark Guzdial and Barbara Erickson. Erickson, they're at Georgia Tech. And if you go to Mark's blog, computing.wordpress.com, the man is a blogging machine. Almost every day he puts up something interesting cool. about computing and education. He, he isn't just an academic researcher. He's been part of a, several consortia that have been trying to shift the needle in the southeast, you know, Georgia, Tennessee, that region, trying to get this stuff into schools. And they've identified that the problem isn't a technical one. The problem is that cycle of schools won't offer courses unless they're sure they get teachers. Teachers won't specialize in computing until they're sure the courses are going to be offered. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I, I know Mark pretty well, and there's there's other problems there there as yep. well. And part of it is this, that in, in the U.S., oftentimes computing doesn't meet the requirements under things like No Child Left Behind. Yep. And as such, basically what happens is a school district says, all right, our math skills at our school are lower than we would expect, and we're going to lose funding unless we focus on that. Therefore, we better not teach computer science because that's bad. When the reality is, what they should be saying is, this is the 21st century, and students at our school need to have technical skills because that's mm-hmm. the century they live in, right? Sort of just the just yeah. the opposite response of what they should have, but they don't have a choice because it's actually mandated. They lose actual financing if uh, that happens. And, it's a big problem. And there's a bit of pushback deserved here, though, and, and I've been on the receiving end of this. Everybody can agree that there ought to be more computing in schools. I've never heard anybody argue against that. The problem is. What do you take out to make room? Here in Toronto, for example, should the Toronto District School Board have less health and physical education to make room for computing? Well, I think that's a bad idea. You know, we're facing an obesity epidemic like everybody else. Should there be less math? I'd fight that. I mean, given the choice between math and programming, I think it's more important the kids learn math. But should there be less on Social studies, easy for me to say, but that's where kids learn the history of their country and how the legal system works and what the rest of this province and country look like. Every single thing that's in the curriculum has a defender. It's somebody fought hard to get it in there and keep it in there. So it's not enough to say we're right. 
we have to be more right than somebody else. We have yeah. to display something because it's a zero-sum game. And people try to fudge this by saying, oh, if everybody knew how to program, they could learn these other subjects faster. Again, where's the mm-hmm. evidence for that? Absolutely. Right? So I, I agree that there ought to be computing in the schools. But I'm damned yeah. if I know what I want my daughter to not learn yeah. so that she can learn programming. And I, I know this will make you crazy, but I would go in and argue that computer science should be taught almost as an advanced math class just on the basis that I wanted to, on the computer, I wanted to learn how to draw angles and circles mm-hmm. and arcs. And I went to a 2A school in southern Utah, so, I mean, like, pre-calculus and trigonometry was the advanced track senior level. There just was no more math I could learn at my school. And I got into trigonometry, and I could do it all in my head. I mean, I knew what the signs, approximately, of an angle were. Yep. Because I had spent three years writing programs to draw circles and and polygons and, and that sort of thing. Speaking of learning from math and programming, Greg talked about and posted a link, which will be on the page, to an IPython notebook describing the pull requests. And this is a great example of this IPython notebook tool is used by scientists to Mm -hmm. analyze data reproducibly because the code is right there and it's basically like IRB with pictures and it graphs the results of your commands for you so that you can look at them and analyze the data visually and really think about it. This is something that I have found lacking in Clojure. There is one, but it was really hard to get running. In Scala, there is one, and it was even harder to get running. But this notebook, this idea of really looking at our data mathematically, not just sampling it, like whenever I'm Working in the REPL, I just say, give me the first element of this map so I can look at it. This is something that the scientists do that we could learn from Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that Greg's group teaches. Being able to program gives us the ability to learn from this data in ways that scientists are are just learning in Greg's software carpentry program. And and the irony is... Yeah, the, the irony is that we as programmers are telling everybody else to use analytics. You know, go off and analyze traffic mm-hmm. on your website. See mm-hmm. who converts. See who clicks. Look at correlations in your sales patterns. Look at, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of programmers that have become data obsessives and stats obsessives. And the one thing they won't turn that lens on is themselves. Yeah. I got to say, this is one of the things that I, I found so odd about, uh, you know, some of the emails we get about many of the studies we run by, you know, so for example, we, you know, that, that Perl study, we, we ran it again on a larger sample, added a bunch of languages. Ruby does quite well in those studies, actually. We learned a lot on the Quorum project from Ruby, specifically the way it structures if statements were much better than we had on Quorum, uh, for example. But anyway, the funny thing is, though, when we get a letter from somebody saying, oh, you suck, you're just bashing Perl, whatever, the thing that's so weird about it is I don't I don't really see why people even care, right? You know, for example, suppose that the language that you use and love is no better than one designed randomly. Well, why not just fix it over time? And I, maybe not in Perl, maybe not in whatever language, but it seems to me that it makes more sense that the next person that's designing language designs, that's doing a new language, should just follow the data because why wouldn't you do that? It just makes no sense 
to not follow the evidence out of some kind of like feeling of advantage or feeling of belief or something. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, psychologists actually have a technical term. I, I had to look this up. There's a term in psychology for somebody who will ignore evidence that could lead them to doing something better or you know more profitably, more healthy or something like that. The term really? is yeah. The term is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally expecting it to say something much <laughs> I was expecting you to cite the recent study on solution avoidance bias, but stupid no. is much funnier. No, it's, it's, <laughs> and we, we all do it. Back when I was faculty at University of Toronto, I had students who smoked. right? And I don't know if you've ever had to bury a student, but you don't get over that. And so I would tell them, do you not know what this is doing to your heart, to your lungs, to your teeth? Right? And they all know, and they keep doing it. How many of you eat three healthy meals today? Hell, how many of you flossed this morning? <laughs> right? So we all do it somewhere. But the hypocrisy of telling everybody else that they should go and analyze their data, the, the, the measured self with the you know Fitbits and things like that and all these personal monitors for how many steps did you take? What was your heart rate? You know, we build this stuff. We tell everybody else how cool it is. We could turn that on our own practice. Another example, a guy from the Firefox team, fairly senior team leader, had some time on a flight, had a bunch of data on his laptop. So he went and he built a very, very simple linear regression model. Basically just draw a straight line saying, if this is the rate at which new issues are coming in, when are we going to ship? Because we can look at that historically. Yeah. Right? Using that model, he said the next release of Firefox isn't going to be ready until two months after it's currently slated to go out. And everybody said, no, 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 we're on track. We'll be okay, right? Which means politically it's not acceptable yet to say we're going to miss our target date. Well, guess what? They shipped two and a half months after they were originally slated to. Now, at that point, people started paying attention. But it shouldn't have been an astounding bit of rocket science. It should have been normal. It's complete. This was sure. published in 1996. <laughs> Right, And I think the problem is the blind leading the blind. Most faculty in computer science departments have never shipped a product. They've certainly never shipped version 2 of a product. And they weren't taught to think about software engineering as an engineering discipline. I mean, most of what is taught in software engineering is actually project management. That's exactly right. right? Yeah. Now you can, In fact, the, even the textbooks are overwhelmingly just project management. It's ab, silly. Ab, mm -hmm. ab, ab, well, no, it isn't. There needs to be project management. And, you know, most engineering programs have a project management class, and you can be objective, you can be analytical about project management. If you're doing lots of projects in the construction industry, you can tell how many kilometers of road are we going to get built this month. Mm -hmm. My father-in-law used to do exactly that. You can't do it nearly as accurately in in software development, but you can do it a lot better than we do. I mean, if you're building websites for shopping malls, you can predict pretty much how long it's going to take, plus or minus a factor of two, maybe. Whereas right now, we're just guessing. And well, what I mean is that when you read one of these major software engineering books, almost any of them, really, they talk about project management, but it's also, it's very fuzzy. It's not like, here's how we use evidence to try to gauge things. It's more like, uh, you know, here are the different process models that you could use. You could use waterfall. You could use spiral. You could use agile. And then that's it. That's yep. the end. The end. Mm -hmm. yep. All we need to know. Uh, let me ask the panelists. Um, how many of you have watched a show called Mad Men? Uh, like one episode. All right. So, no. 
ad agency in New York in the 1960s. And one of the things that struck me was that they were all blind. It was six months from when you started an ad campaign until you had even a little bit of sales data back to tell you if you were on the right track. Everybody was flying blind. Today, it is 15 minutes from the time an item leaves the shelves in Walmart until head office knows that item has been sold. That's globally. That's not just in the United States. Right. And, and on the website, there's no reason for it to be that long. Everything gets aggregated, archived. It's just we have this, and it makes things more efficient. But it took marketing two decades, three decades, to turn themselves into a data-driven discipline, and parts of it still aren't. Yeah. Medicine is still going through this. There are very few medical programs in North America whose curriculum is driven by empirical evidence. The one at McMaster University here in Ontario is one of the few. There's nothing they teach, absolutely nothing they teach, for which they do not have a study saying this is beneficial. And the thing that makes them really special is that they have this rolling survey. What do doctors still remember and use five to ten years after graduation? Because if you're not still using it five years after graduation, we won't bother to teach it. Mm -hmm. So they've got the four-year curriculum down to three years, and they can prove that their graduates are just as good at being GPs as anybody else's. That's incredible. Right? And, and well, I mean, is- especially in medicine where the history of lack of data is so astounding. I mean, the studies on mesmerism by mm-hmm. Benjamin Franklin from the late 1700s, but, but yet that ridiculous theory lasted a hundred years. The yep. homeopathy, which came out in the 1830s, was discredited by the 1900s, but yet is still funded by the UK today. I mean, it's staggering. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, uh, after watching feel, the, I, I was just going to say that makes me feel better about going to the doctor. <laughs> well, so after after watching both of your uh, your talks, I kind of wanted to start calling myself a software witch doctor. <laughs> I have that in my notes. It's, yes, it's really uh, you know. I mean, a lot of what we do is, is folk medicine. But there's so much it, more glory in that in uh, just yeah, and you know, right compared to proving it. I am it, so it started. Me, I'm going to start up a dev shop now that's called it, Shrunken so. Head Software. <laughs> Uh, it reminds me a lot of, I love reading authors from like the 19th century. You had these guys with incredibly impressive beards who would write about things like psychology. You know, you had like uh, William James writing about psychology and Sir James George Fraser writing about like what became anthropology. And some of that writing is so great, but it really was just like a guy sort of stroking his beard and taking all these stories that people would anecdotal stories that people would submit from the field and he'd stroke his beard for a while and come up with a grand theory to explain it all. And some of it was, you know, turned out to be somewhat apt and a lot of it turned out to be bunk. But boy, some of that writing sure, you know, is fun to read. Yeah. No, and the idea that if you make something quantitative, that if you measure it, the fun goes out is, mm. is completely untrue. Yeah. And, and I've had this argument with people in the arts. They say, you know, if you know the science behind the rainbow, the rainbow stops being beautiful. And the answer is no. If you read literary criticism, it doesn't make you enjoy the novel less. If you learn music theory, it doesn't make you enjoy the song less. If I know why the rainbow has those colors, I think I appreciate it more. Knowing about evolution lets me see more beauty in the world around me rather than less. And I think the same is true of engineering. I think that both of my brothers can look at a house and see things that I can't because they know how it's put together. They see through it, not just the surface. I think that understanding more about the relationship between choice of variable names, 
and how readable the code is makes me a better programmer and also makes me enjoy programming more because I know I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. right? Pair programming. Some of the studies that were done, you know, there were a lot of flaky studies done, but it looks like there's a technique that actually does improve coding, but only in short bursts. Right? If you pair program with the same person for an extended period, the benefits wear off. Now, one theory is that you start thinking alike. Another theory is it's it's the Facebook effect. You know, when you're first sitting beside somebody, you don't want them reading your email. If you've been sitting beside somebody for three weeks, you don't care if they see you with your, you know, your fuzzy <laughs> slippers on, right? So maybe pairing with somebody forces you to be on your best game for a while, but then you slack off just as you do after you get mm. to know your roommates. You know, we don't know, but now we can ask a more intelligent question. Now we can go and dig deeper and... That's fun. So, yeah. so my ideal software engineering course is something where we ask the students to collect and analyze data. I don't know that they have to do experiments any more than astronomers do experiments. I mean, you don't go and construct a galaxy and then measure its rotation, right? You use the ones that we have because the environmental impact <laughs> statement is just a, you know, killer otherwise. But there's so much data out there that we could give to our students and say, okay, analyze this. Right, see what you can find in this. Are good programmers really ten times better than than average programmers? You know, let's mm. get back to to that. Well, mm -hmm. there's GitHub. Right, mm -hmm. tell me how you're going, to, what you're going to measure, and how you're going to measure it. And I'm not. A, there is no right answer. There's just a right method. You change exactly what you're measuring and how you're measuring. You can get whatever answer you want. But at least now I know exactly what you mean. And now I can agree or disagree. Go ahead, please, Jessica. Oh, and all of those studies are done in a particular context. But if we get good at gathering data and analyzing it ourselves, we can find out what works in our particular context. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Also, I, th I think that's a good point because, you know, when you run experiments, the context matters a lot. But so when, when, we, when I was in London at uh, CodeMesh, and I think Jessica was there in the room, there was an individual that got up and said, the only thing that matters for an experiment on static versus dynamic typing is if you had professional programmers that were working on projects of one million lines of code or larger. Right? Was that individual Joe Armstrong? I believe it was. It may have been. <laughs> but the point is that oftentimes, I think as developers, we have these beliefs that certain contexts matter or don't. But the reality is, in most scientific fields, what you look for is patterns across sets of contexts. And so I want to give a, a tangible example. In the studies that we have on static versus dynamic typing, the evidence is pretty clear that if you have static typing in method declarations, that it improves programmer productivity with a variance accounted for measure between 0.3 and 0.5. So what that means in plain English is if you look at the wobble, like the variance between programmers, about 30 to 50% of that variance accounts for differences you observe. And when you videotape, you can get a pretty good estimate of why developers go in and look at other files and try to find what type to pass and all this kind of stuff. But the thing is, is that if you look at novices using static typing, or also if you look at generics when you're trying to change files, you see different properties. So for example, for uh, novices, you find that these individuals actually miss the type annotations 92% of the time inside of a method declaration, exactly the same spot that a professional or someone with more experience would garner benefits from. On the other hand, 
If you look on the inside of a function, like you're writing code within a function as opposed to the declaration, what you observe is that novices miss it less. So you can actually look across those contexts and try to find compromises. So that's why in Quorum right now, we allow a certain amount of type inference on the inside of functions because it helps novices a little bit, but we don't allow inference on method declarations because the evidence points to the fact that it causes a drop in productivity for developers. Wow. So we might as well look across these and do what helps the most people possible under as many contexts as we can reasonably study in a lifetime. One of my profs when I was in engineering said, engineers are not allowed to use the words right and wrong. They are only allowed to use the words better and worse. That's exactly what Andreas and his team are, are helping us get towards. There are always going to be trade-offs. I mean, let's face it. If you are Guy Steele Jr., you don't need types of any kind, right? If you are Simon Peyton Jones, mm. right? I, you know, I don't think he uses the backspace key when he codes. <laughs> no, I, I, I've, I've met the man. I've watched him type. I don't think he uses the backspace because, but you know, we shouldn't be designing all of our systems around or for them. Yeah. Nor should we be designing them around or for the 87-year-old grandfather who has never used a computer before. If we know what the distribution is, we can do what the HCI people do, which is if 90% of the people are happy, 90% of the time you call that a win and you keep moving. Yeah. But we don't even know what our distributions look like, and we could. Yeah. We could. This is what's so frustrating, is this is purely self-inflicted damage at this point. 20 years ago, we didn't have the data. I grant that. Yeah. 10 years ago, yeah, we had it, but we weren't really sure what to do with it. Now, we don't have all the answers. We don't even have most of the important answers, but we have some of them, and we can act on them. And I'm just embarrassed that we don't. Here's, here's a question I have, which is, there's a, actually a philosophical field of study dedicated to the philosophy of science itself, which is, how do we know science works? Like what, like the, how do you tell pseudoscience from real science? And one of the bugbears in the philosophy of science is that it's actually impossible to discern pseudoscience from a genuine astonishing discovery in the early days without being able to read the mind of the discoverer. You have to have this, this longitudinal study. And I'm curious, you mentioned in your talk, you know, show me the evidence and, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data and that sort of thing. If everyone goes off and demands evidence, who's going to perform studies? I mean, I'm, I'm asking this for the sake of my job security as a folk medicine witch doctor here. Sure. So that's the role of people like Andreas. That's why we fund universities. They are trained to do this. The thing that we need to tell them is what questions we have. Now, I'm going to have to jump, but Andreas might be able to pull up a paper by Andrew Bagel, B-E-G-E-L, who's at Microsoft Research. He went and asked several hundred developers inside Microsoft, what questions do you most want software engineering researchers to answer? Awesome. Right? Okay, now we're starting to close the loop because going back to medicine, I think they have a much clearer idea there of what clinicians want answers for. Mm -hmm. right? There's a wide gulf between what software engineering researchers study and what programmers care about. Again, as an example, when I asked one of the leads for the Firefox team, what do you most want to know? His question was, how long should our release cycle be? We've picked six weeks. But we just, you know, we picked that. Should it be shorter or longer? Okay, 
I've never seen anybody do a study that looks at how long a, a release cycle should be for a product where you've got the possibility of near-continuous deployment. I wish there were there was more of that. I would love to see a hundred software engineering researchers show up to the next OSCON or to the next Strange Loop. I keep trying to get them to go. I would similarly like to see more people from those sorts of conferences coming back to things like the International Conference on Software Engineering so that people could meet each other. And I keep trying to engineer that, and it keeps not happening. No, I think that's fantastic. I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sure. Normally, Andreas, I would say that you agreeing with Greg would make you redundant to this call, but in this case, <laughs> this is this is a great case of uh, scheduling failover. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're, my lab's kind of in the trenches for this stuff. We conduct a lot of studies, so mm -hmm. I think Greg has the, the luxury of being you know able to sort of look big picture at a lot of this and ask questions about what's needed and stuff like that. We can do that too, but we have to actually published to try to prove a lot of this stuff and that's mm -hmm. it's it's a hard thing especially given that there's so little data out there oftentimes even knowing exactly what to test is not easy you know even mm -hmm. foundational questions like you you would have thought that static versus dynamic typing like what the impact is on programmer productivity would have been answered 30 or 40 years ago but right. but in fact like it's really only been the last 3 to 4 years that people have started investigating at least in any serious sense, in in an actual research line where they conduct mm -hmm. multiple replicable studies over time on various kinds of groups and stuff like that. But yeah, but believe it or not, that's the truth. I mean, people have didn't even really investigate for for decades, which is very strange. So, so, so I have a question here, and it kind of stems from something that Greg was talking about earlier, where he mentioned, you know, what's our optimal release cycle? You know, we kind of arbitrarily picked six months. And it seems like, you know, when we're following agile methodologies, we have our retrospectives and we sit down and we say, we have this problem. We want to overcome it, you know, so we're, we're releasing buggy software, for example, or we're really curious to see if this works better than this. But, you know, when we have the retrospective, we all sit around the table and we go, so how did you feel about what we did? Yeah. You know, and, and then the other guy, well, you know, when we were pairing, it really helped me with this and it really didn't help me with this. And, you know, that, that's useful, I think, in feeling productive, but is there a way for us as development teams to actually demonstrate or prove our theories where we actually then can say definitively, yeah, pairing made a big difference on this team or whatever? Well, there, okay, so this is actually a hard question. And the reason it's hard is because when you're developing tools for real, so for example, even though my lab is a research lab, I also build Quorum. So I probably spend, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week working on the compiler or whatever it is I, I feel like, or some libraries or whatever it is we're doing, right? And the thing is, is that when you're in the trenches and you're writing code, oftentimes you don't have time to take a step back and do a ton of scientific analysis on how you're coding, right? Mm -hmm. And also as scientists, Sometimes it's hard uh, when it comes to this this sort of work because you don't want to spend a lot of time trying to answer scientific questions that don't actually matter, right? That aren't foundational, at right. least as a research lab. But see, this is the rub because if you're a development company, you often don't really care whether the, the metrics and analysis that you have are answering foundational questions. Like you may not care about static versus dynamic typing or syntax or something like that. But you might very much so care about 
how much money it costs you to have your developers spending an extra two months, right? Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. So, but the problem is, since we don't track almost anything with our software development processes on an individual company level or in general, oftentimes the first thing that you can do is track anything that you can do easily and see if anything sticks. That's the honest truth. So in other words, at first, if you have no idea what you're doing, then just have somebody on the team dedicated to just tracking stuff. In other words, anything you think might be relevant. Because that's better than nothing. And if you find nothing, then at the end of the day, you pick other stuff for the next round, right? You see what I mean? In other words, so, when you know nothing, you have to start with something. And that something might be bogus. It might be completely wrong, totally misguided. But nonetheless, over time, our discipline will get better at figuring out what things matter by people just trying all sorts of crazy ideas to figure out their productivity concerns. Mm-hmm. That's a win. It would be lovely if we could have data in our retro for anything that can conceivably be measured and we think is important, and also talk about feelings for things that feelings matter for, like our own experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's important. You know, oftentimes we, as at least as researchers in my lab, we focus pretty clearly on uh, quantitative measurement. So we boil things down to numbers and then we run tests on distributions and such. But at the end of the day, too, there's more than just numbers. Oftentimes these qualitative studies asking developers things can be very useful. Or even on a team, oftentimes you can't boil down the release of a product necessarily to a number because no one number would necessarily give you the whole story about what you just released. So sometimes you just need to sit down and talk about it too. So this is the hard part about science is that oftentimes you have incomplete measures and, you know, nothing's perfect. So it kind of is what it is in that context. So That's the story of our lives as humans and as programmers acting on incomplete information. Yeah, so I mean, in our studies on syntax, for example, you know, when we run experiments... And let's suppose for this, one of the results that we had a few years ago that I thought was funny was if you have a looping construct, right? Just like, you know, it's going to be a for loop or something. Well, it turns out that when we do surveys, and I mean scientific surveys, where that we've done them on large scale, we've done them at multiple universities, we've had vetting by other scientists and all sorts of stuff, uh, peer review. What we find is that the words that are consistently rated the worst choices for understanding the concepts of loops that concept of repetition or iteration or whatever you want to call it, are the words for, while, and for each in that order. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sort of funny. But on the other hand, the question then becomes immediately one of context, like whether that matters. So, for example, if you're in a developer shop and you're using Ruby or Java or whatever, you can't even change that, right? Even if you wanted to, it would make no difference because the only people that can change that are language designers, But on the other hand, we know that the language design community isn't using evidence. And even if they do (laughs) use evidence, that particular result is done with people that are is generally done with novices because they have no innate biases, right? So the question then is, what kinds of people does that impact? So for us on projects like Quorum, we have to effectively make a choice. Do we want to use that kind of evidence to try to influence the design of the language or does it have a negative impact for somebody else? And that's a really hard question to answer sometimes. I mean, granted, I think that most professional developers that aren't totally, what was the word Gray used? Stupid? <laughs> they, if you, 
if you go use a phrase like repeat 10 times in a programming language, I think most professionals can figure out what the hell that means. So I don't know how much of a big deal that particular one really is. But the thing is, what's interesting in that context is a professional can probably figure out what that means. A novice is more statistically likely to. So is that the right decision? Well, it's still hard to know. And that's just language design. Individual mm -hmm. companies, anything, any bets are off. Yeah. And that, that, that sort of leads into something that I want to ask about. And this is kind of a big ball of a question. I'm not sure where to start into it. So bear with me. And I, first of all, I, want, I just want to say, like, I think you're doing God's work. Uh, but, <laughs> but you're the one. So I, I want to do a little bit of sort of being just like, I'll take the role of the, the voice of, of resistance. You know, we've talked a little bit about how there's a lot of resistance to these ideas and I will be the voice of resistance a little bit because I can sort of recognize in myself some of those resistances when I hear this stuff. I'll, I'll start here. I'm not sure the best place to start, but I'll start here. I spent, uh, I don't know, roughly nine years in a, a giant aerospace corporation and it wasn't a particularly happy place to work. And, and, and they were definitely big on engineering or at least what they called engineering. When academia impinged upon my work at all. It was usually in the form of management fads like CMMI and Six Sigma and TQM and stuff like that, which which came along with a lot of at least supposed metrics and, you know, and, and data and stuff like that. And they usually, they seem to be focused on how to squeeze another 2% of productivity out of a giant mass of developers who are basically miserable cogs and wheels. So starting from the assumption of a bunch of miserable cogs and wheels that are replaceable, how do we squeeze another 2% of productivity out of them? And I guess, you know, something that I wonder about is like in an organization like that, you can do a study, like a lot of the, a lot of the, the data that we see, you know, be, a, a lot of times it's only the big organizations that, that collect any data like Microsoft. So a lot of the data we see comes out of places like Microsoft and you can see that, like, you know, say, I don't know, something like static typing or something might make any, a percentage increase in that organization. But what I worry about a little is whether there's a possibility of optimizing for local maxima there. Because, so I think everyone on this panel probably has anecdotal evidence uh, or experience of a team that had picked a set of tools and practices you know, a smaller team that picked a set of tools and practices and just completely gelled on them. And this team just delivered and delivered and delivered. Like they just, you know, they were, they, they were on target. And it often seems when you look at stuff like that, it often seems like it doesn't even really matter what tools and practices they chose. You know, more it seemed like it mattered either it was the organization itself or it was the fact that the set of tools and practices that they chose worked well together. Which is sort of the idea that you had in, in, you know, the original XP idea was that, you know, these, these 12 practices, however many, however many there were, you know, they all work well together, but they kind of fall apart on their own. Um, or that the people worked well together. Right. I guess some of the resistance that, that I feel in myself when I look at studies like this, and I wonder if, if others share it with me, is that, that sense that, that what if this is just going to make us start optimizing for local maxima? And ignoring either the, the organizational effects or the synergistic effects that would render those local maxima, you know, meaningless noise. Yeah. So, you know, actually, I appreciate this question a lot because it's the type of thing that comes up in this kind of research. Or actually, it's also the type of things that came up in uh, medicine when they were transitioning from an from an evidence, I mean, a non-evidence-based discipline to an evidence-based discipline. So I'll give, I'll give you a classic example of the medicine in just a second, but let me, let me tackle this local maxima issue first, because I think it's, it's really important. And that is this. If I optimize or some set of research people optimize programming languages as best as possible, and that's for the sake of argument, 
say that there's a best possible language. I think that's BS. I don't think there is such a thing or probably ever will be. But suppose for the sake of argument that it is. There's no guarantee that even if you put that best possible language, whatever that is, at an organization, that it will improve productivity by more than X percent for some value of X. So think about it. Even if you have the best possible language product at an organization, that doesn't mean that the people don't suck, right? That doesn't mean that the manager isn't a dick, right? Mm -hmm. Or that, that the colleagues that you have, you hired people with the wrong expertise. It doesn't mean that you lost funding at the sec, the last second and it had nothing to do with uh, the language technology. The problem is that these are human organizations. You know, for example, a medical doctor can conduct a heart transplant and a certain percentage of people that do that are probably going to die, right? But really good procedures might lower that percentage. So I think what's important here when we talk about this concept of local maximum context is to realize that even though we've done studies on things like static typing and syntax and stuff like that, at the end of the day, we've conducted maybe six to 10, something like that studies so far. But what we need is six to 10,000 studies, mm -hmm. right? In other words, when medicine, I'll use this example in the 1830s or 40s or 50s or whatever it was, there's a really famous quotation that I recall reading from this fellow named Kapchuk. It's a, it's a paper on the history of randomized controlled trials in that discipline. And he has this wonderful quotation that I'm going to say slightly wrong, but I'll do the best I can. And a doctor said something around the range of, I'm not going to test homeopathy because it's abundantly clear that bloodletting is the appropriate procedure for medical doctors to use. <laughs> but think about that for just a second. At the end of the day, what the doctors at the time were missing wasn't that one particular procedure like static typing or something was better. What the doctors at the time were missing was that they were a non-evidence-based discipline. And that's the right. core problem that we see today. So we don't even really know exactly whether we're hitting local maximum or not. And in our case of static typing studies, I think we're pretty confident that static typing varies across different kinds of people. It appears from the 2013 paper by Hanneberg that if you uh, use generic types that it can, uh, actually you may not know this result, so let me say it. There's a paper out of Uppsala or Splash by Stefan Hanneberg. They had people use generics for static typing. And what's interesting is that the static typing results actually vary when you add in generics compared to the types of API studies that Stefan and I did together earlier. This one was all in just him. Anyway, so if you use a generic, like you have like list string, something like that, like in, in a Java-like language, it turns out that does bump your productivity under the conditions of the test just a little bit. The effect size is pretty small, but it does exist. However, if you change a generics class, change, that's the key thing, it decreases your productivity by tenfold. Tenfold. Uh, so now think you, about that. If you, the, you mean if you change the interface from list string to list integer or something like that? No, 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 no. I mean the list class itself. Oh, okay. And so, of course, this is context-dependent. Of course, if you just change one thing in the class, that's very little. But the problem is when they, when they videotape these people, they find that they effectively have no idea how to use things like generics to build a class or to change that class. But using it's no big deal. Now, that's interesting because if you look at data by Chris Parnin, 
and some of these other guys that do the types of studies Greg was more talking about, which is sort of source code repository, what they find is that developers overwhelmingly use very simple generic constructs like list string. So it's, it's sure interesting that when we look at what people really do in the field, it seems to be related to what actually impacts their productivity. To me, that's fascinating that that's mm -hmm. the case. That we're doing it right. Well, in other words, by accident. Peep, peep, yes, that's the key, by accident, by mm -hmm. accident. Well, it's, or, it's sort of the natural process. We're not accelerating ourselves yet. It's, we'll, we're still like in the process of evolution where nature sort of senses that some things work out better than others. Or right. maybe, you know, the animal that learns that, you know, when it goes over here, it gets an electric shock. It doesn't really know, understand, about, understand electricity yet. <laughs> but it, the whole it, it, interesting part of thinking is, can we do better than natural selection? Right, right. Because <laughs> if, if we don't, we die. Yeah, well, true. There's all sorts of wonderful, wonderful studies on uh, artificial selection, too, that are very fascinating. You can never read them. Anyway. In, in an interesting way, it sounds like what you're kind of praising is that, you know, we're, we're doing... Gary talked about in, his, in his talk about, like, folk medicine, right? Like, they would go to the jungle and they would find these indigenous people that were, you know, putting tree sap on a wound, and it would get better very quickly. And mm -hmm. they would then go, okay, we can see that that works. Let's sit down and figure out why it works. And I feel like that's kind of, Avdi said witch doctor, that made me laugh because I have in my notes, I am a computer science witch doctor because <laughs> all of my stuff is not based on evidence. It's just based on my own experience of which tree saps make my programs go faster mm. and which tree saps make it go slower. And it's terrifying. <laughs> well, you know, I'll have another story here just because I think it's uh -huh. uh, interesting. So when we ran our last study, which came out in December, which was essentially we we gathered just tons and tons of data on syntax, right? Mm -hmm. We had some people with experience look and do surveys and stuff like that. We tested across lots of languages like Go and Smalltalk and had people answer questions about different variations in syntax that, you know, basically lots of things that did semantically the same thing, but where the representation of the language changed, right? Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, the most interesting result for me as a language designer on the Quora project was that it turned out that that study disproved a lot of beliefs that I held in regard to language design. So mm -hmm. we want to give you an example. We thought in Quorum 1 that natural language would be very effective for certain kinds of constructs, especially if statements, right? Mm -hmm. So we had uh, if, and then we had some parens, and then we had A equals B or whatever, and then we had the word then, so yeah. like the if then, right? Yeah. And then, but we wanted a terminator, kind of like the left brace and the right brace. And so we had the word end. So if you had an if statement, it'd say something like, if A equals B, then, and, else, then, that sort of idea. Ooh. But it turned, yeah, well, <laughs> you say that, but then we, we tested it and we tested it against a whole bunch of other languages, one of which was Ruby. And what we found is we used this technique, which comes from DNA processing. We call it token accuracy maps. It's sort of a way to predict, um, highly accurately which tokens cause problems for people under a particular context. It works very well and is highly huh. replicable. Cool. Yeah, it's sort of funny. You can, that's why I can say something like, 92% of novices miss the type annotation on a method declaration because this DNA processing technique helps us sort this out, basically. Um, anyway, so what we found, though, is that Ruby just demolished Quorum in its design of if statements. The thens, 
At the top of the statement, only 67% of people novices got it right. Uh, the ends on the inside of statements, only 8% of people got it right. I mean, it just totally destroyed us. And so we could have done two things. We could have said, ah, Ruby's wrong. Screw Ruby. But what we really did is we <laughs> stole everything that worked. So this now, is how I know you're not a PHP programmer. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, we were fighting with PHP yesterday, but that's another story. But um, <laughs> So the only exception that Ruby did not get right, that Quorum did get right, in terms of the if statement design, was the equal sign. So Ruby uses the mm. double equals. But it turns out in the four languages we tested, any language that used the double equal sign, between 0 and 8% of novices, getting the exact numbers slightly hard for complicated reasons, between 0 and 8% of people correctly used it inside of an if statement. That's fascinating. But what's even more fascinating is that you realize that we always test against placebo, right? So we also had a group that just by chance used the right slash to indicate the equals equals. And it turns out they did just as well as the Ruby group for that particular token. <laughs> and that's interesting because if you use a single equal sign, it raises a novice's performance to about 67% accuracy for that token. So about two-thirds of people, give or take. So what that means is we can take Ruby, optimize out all the pieces that they did right that we did wrong, but keep any of the pieces that we did right over time, making languages that only use the things that win, that use the best features that we can according to a set of standardized metrics and controlled studies, essentially. Okay, I'm going to be devil's advocate here real quick, and I actually am disagreeing with myself as I say this, but <laughs> um, how much does it matter, or do we know how much it matters, to make languages that are easy for novices? In other words, is there a difference that disappears as people get more experienced with programming in general? Like, obviously, the, the double equals comes from C. It was, it's there to make things comfortable for C programmers, not for novices. Yeah, we don't know. The number of studies is astonishingly small, astonishingly small. However, we do know that compiler errors are actually an issue for professionals from a, a Google study that was done at ICSI 2014, a big software engineering conference. But what we do know from their study is that the types of errors that uh, professionals at Google, and I want to say that very clearly because the context is important, the types of issues that they have are different than some of the issues that novices have. So, for example, the Google study, if I recall correctly, showed that the biggest predictor of developers losing time to productivity time to compiler errors, again, not syntax, but compiler errors, was anything related to these, like, module dependencies, right? You know what I'm talking about, how, like, you don't just have a compiler error, you have a compiler error because you need to load a library on your path or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Apparently, those errors are a major problem for developers at Google. However, when you look at errors for novices, things change a little bit. So there's a researcher named Paul Denny, and he showed that type system errors accounted for something like, I think it was 33% of the time for people in a first class. So not just the beginning, which is what we test in our lab, but over the course of a semester. But we also know by the time that you're in your third year of a program that these type system details improve your productivity. But no one's ever tested, to my knowledge, children. So, for example, if you can't read, then syntax doesn't make any difference at all, but you might want to use a tool like Scratch. So, in other words, we don't know very much about the various kinds of contexts that these things matter in order to optimize across these groups. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, 
we're starting to get reliable and replicable data, at least under some conditions, which I think is better than nothing. So, mm -hmm. or at least a start. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing lots of studies in computer science lately, and I'm seeing people gripe about this on Twitter, like, like Gary Bernhardt, <laughs> other people talking about a lot of studies in computer science that have fewer than 60 participants, and the most common cohort is college students who desperately want free pizza. And so they tend to be novices or first or second year uh, programmers. They tend to fall into a specific cohort. I've heard an argument that big successful businesses often, well, no, big businesses want to be studied for like their CMM level and their, you know, whatever compliance. But like startups often don't want people doing studies while they're busy trying to make money and that sort of, sort of, sort of thing. So that was a long rambly question. Studies with too few participants and with too isolated of a cohort. How do we deal with that? Uh, actually, so there's a standard and that's called statistical significance. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically how this works in modern science at in, and I want to be very clear. In every single other discipline, except computer science, every single other discipline, is we do the following. We conduct an experiment and we gather two metrics. One is called a p-value. A p-value gives a very, well, people disagreed about exactly what it means, but <laughs> some, some people interpret it as the probability that a particular study will replicate. That's not strictly true, but nonetheless, it's a rough guesstimate for that type of idea. Okay. However, there's a second thing that we have to do, and that is we have to gather what's called the variance accounted for, or the effect size. Now, what this means is, if I run a study, and I get a p-value of a particular standard, so in different disciplines it works differently, in psychology or computer science is typically a 5% chance that you're wrong, so 1 in 20, which is not very good, but in physics... It's six sigma often, so I think it's like one in half a billion, or I, I forget the exact numbers, but it's really, really rigorous, right? Because you can conduct yeah. very large scale things. But here's the catch. When you conduct scientific studies on small samples, that's okay so long as you conduct replication studies and get the same variance accounted for and mm -hmm. the others. So for example, if we conducted many, many studies on static typing, which we're doing, and we observed different effect size values for particular studies, we would know that the original sample was probably wrong, the original data. Right. However, if we conduct scientific replications and we get approximately the same answer on a different sample, then we know that at least that measure is reliable. So let me be very specific. In the original study on Pearl, we had six people in that group, which is nothing. Right? That's, <laughs> like, that's a tiny amount. We ran a replication. The replication was accurate to within 0.3% accuracy on a new sample. Oh, wow. So should we run a study that has 100,000 people in it just to make sure that we get even more accurate? Hell no, because that's a waste of money. So if you want to pitch that to the National Science Foundation, what you should do instead is start running studies under different contexts. So mm -hmm. children, professionals, people in various years third-year engineers at Google's, fifth-year, people close to requirement, people so experienced that they're close to death, right? Whatever you want to test. In other words, we use probabilities and we use effect sizes in order to detect replication, and that's the keystone to science, not necessarily the sample size itself. That's actually, it's such a common misunderstanding. It has a, it has a name. It's called the fallacy of large numbers. Jessica asked a great question in the back channel about, every single other discipline 
And she says maybe that implies that our discipline isn't. I love the fact that when I first got into software engineering, I was a student member of the ACM and the IEEE, and at the, this was in the, the early 90s, and there was a furious set of arguments going around back then that software engineers should not be allowed to call themselves engineers because <laughs> we were the only branch of engineering that did not have licensing exams, board certifications, bonding, standard practices for safe building of what we do. It, it's like a janitor calling themselves a sanitation engineer. It's a mockery. And the fact that, you know, a sanitation engineer, okay, that's a funny joke. Software engineer, that's an insult to mechanical engineers and to civil engineers and, and, and the like. Yeah, it's crazy. I want to make sure I understand what you said about the fallacy of large numbers. So you did a study with six participants and you got this I'm well, assuming that, that group had six participants in it, which is tiny, right? Tiny okay. By, by any standard. Right. So you replicated it with six more, or did you go get 60 the second time? The second time we had 12, and we added new contexts. So in that okay. case, we went from three languages to six that we tested because we mm -hmm. wanted to see if uh, different languages held different properties. So, for example, it turns out Java has the same property as Perl in that it doesn't beat a randomly designed language. And, in fact, it doesn't. <laughs> It does about 3% worse, and the reason <laughs> is because of the type annotations. So, like, Perl has the weird, funny dollars, right? Yeah. And in Java, it uses names like int or float or whatever. And it turns out that that makes a difference. Not very much. makes a small difference, but it makes some kind of a difference. So, in other words, usually what we do in my lab is we follow the doubling rule. It's not a very common thing, but it's something we do. So, it's sort of like... We run an experiment, and when we start, we use one person. And we don't publish that because, obviously, that's worthless. However, then we run two, and then we run four or eight. So in the first study that we did that, we ran six. And then we ran 12 for each statistic for each group. But the thing is, we replicated so tightly that it wasn't really worth it to go to 24. So that's why you follow a rule like that, because then you can decide, should we run a different study, or should we do the same one again? That's why you do that. That's really interesting because that's a technique that we could use at work. When we're picking, I don't know what to measure, so let's measure something, we can measure it on ourselves, yep. and then on our pair, and then on our team. Yep. And then if we have a really good idea that this could help, maybe even across teams. That's exactly right. And that's why my lab right now is running like, we. I think we're running like 15 studies in parallel because we want to know, all sorts of questions and we don't know which of them we can find reliable data about or even like whether the techniques we're using to study it are any good. So you start with one and then at, when you're doing one, you're, you're generally not expecting to find anything interesting. You don't even have a control. But you can test things like are our measurement techniques accurate? Is the tool that we're having people use working? You know, I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do when you're running these small-scale pilots and building them up over time. And it's a, I, I really appreciate that, Jessica, because that's exactly what you can do in industry. Start really small, do it with one person, and then scale as you learn, you know. Yeah. So Gary yeah. said right before he signed off that when I you asked mean, or, I'm sorry, Greg. I asked, how can I do science? You know, can I do studies and get the published and that sort of thing? And he said, sure, we'd be happy to teach you. Is there a short answer to where I can go to learn this doubling rule and p-values and variance? And Well, it depends what you want to run. So if you want to run really controlled experiments, it does take some practice. But the nice thing is, is that many kinds of randomized controlled trials are actually really astonishingly easy. 
So, for example, here's the simplest kind of controlled trial. You have group A, and it gets one thing, and then you get group B, it gets another thing, and then you randomly assign the participants to both groups. Oh, so one pair drinks coffee, and one pair drinks beer, and, and then that you pair has more fun. <laughs> yes, which pair has more fun? Exactly. Yeah, that's, My that's exactly right. That's called a bleach. between subjects randomized controlled trial. That's what that's called. And actually, when you think about it, that's pretty easy. I mean, that's like Coke or Pepsi. I mean, it's not that hard. Now, when you need to analyze it, the nice thing is, is that since there's a growing group of people in the uh, actual academia that know how to do this stuff, if you ran a controlled trial like that and you sent us the assumptions and you sent us the data, we could run the little tests needed for the stats for you. It's, it would take us 10 minutes. It's not that hard. That's cool. So actually, there's a lot that people can do, even if they don't have all the training to do like you know, really complex designs. And in fact, most of the time, you don't even need complex designs to get to answer some of these basic questions because actually they're easy. You know, like, should I have lambdas? Well, have one group use them and have one group use something else. Should I have enums? Same bloody question. It's really easy most of the time. That could make a really interesting collaboration because we have information that you and academia can use and access yeah. to people who can answer questions for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we make that collaboration, I see a really good conference talk could come out of that. Oh, yeah. yeah, me too. And, you know, I should say just as a mindless plug because I'm useless, I guess, or something. Yeah. Uh, on the Quorum Project, we have this rule, and that is this. If somebody anywhere sends us a randomized controlled trial and it shows that something we believe is wrong, we will change the language because we're scientists. We're not believers, right? But the thing is... That means if you people in industry say, hey, I think the quorum guys are full of crap on this one particular issue, you have a great opportunity because you can just send us the data and show us your methodology and all that kind of stuff. We'll have social scientists or psychologists review it and we'll send it to experts in the area that are real scientists that can uh, do all sorts of stuff. And if it turns out you're right, we have no qualms. It's no big deal at all. In fact, we like that because that means it'll increase the productivity of our users over time. So that's perfect. Yeah. It's sort of a win-win. Yeah, but it has to be evidence, not an essay on how, you know, you're Hitler and Sauron. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. No, if it's not evidence-based, we throw it away, right? Not so, okay. evil. Yeah, I mean, just because we don't have time to just read everybody's random rantings, right? Yeah. So, so speaking of random ranting, uh, again, I want to play the voice of the resi of resistance <laughs> a, a little Go bit ahead. here. So, uh, to bring this back to to Ruby a little bit, uh, Ruby is famously uh, optimized for developer happiness, and that is one of those wonderful statements without without uh, evidence. What I do have is, you know, anecdotally, uh, it seems like more than half of the Ruby developers I have met have a story of basically self-selecting themselves into the language because they hated mm -hmm. the languages they were working with. They hated Java or PHP or .NET or what have you, and were so much happier once they were using Ruby. So let's say I am a Ruby developer, and I, I self-selected into the language because it made me so much happier than what I used to use, and I see a result that says, let's say, lambdas make you less productive. Mm -hmm. And we have a, 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 some good evidence that lambdas make you less productive. But I have resistance to that because I hated using anonymous interclasses in Java. Huh. And yeah. the you idea and of giving up lambdas, you know, makes my fingers curl into claws and it, it makes me feel all defensive. Now, my, my actual question here is, 
what is the next question that I should ask? When I'm confronted with that dichotomy between evidence that says this thing reduces productivity and internal resistance that says, but not doing it makes me miserable, what is the next question I should be asking to move forwards? Okay, that, that's a good question. And I should say, too, that uh, on the Lambda issue, this is something I'm really interested in, but it, it's also exceptionally hard to study. I should say, without telling the results, we've actually run three randomized controlled trials in two different countries, and they've all failed because we just kind of screwed up the design in, in many ways. But that, you know, that's normal. This is why we do these doubling and all this kind of stuff. But And by anyway, failed, so you I, don't mean they didn't give you the results you wanted. You mean the methods were wrong. Yeah, it means we screwed it up. That's what it means. Like we, you know, one of them, we took time data, but we didn't do the timing properly. And so we weren't sure if we were just seeing an artifact or whether it was real. And it's hard to know who to test on for these studies, because if you test with novices, novices can't understand lambdas. They're too complicated. But on the other hand, if you test with professionals that have been using them for a decade, well, what are you really going to learn? You know, so you the question is, which groups should you start? And since there's, so far as we know, no other studies that really have tested this um, rigorously compared to alternatives, the question then is, well, who do you start with? Because you can only one run one study at a time. But anyway, the issues of lambdas aside, I think the heart of your question is, if I find out that a particular thing doesn't support the language that I'm using in some way, what do I do? And unfortunately, the answer right now is that there's probably not much that you can do. Because if you find out that feature X in the language you're using is invalidated, that doesn't necessarily mean you can even switch. So, for example, even though we've never tested C-sharp in our syntax studies, since C-sharp basically has similar syntax to Java, for the most part, not in all cases, but it's pretty similar, it would be unsurprising if C-sharp held the same property that RandomO and Perl and Java all have, that they're, the syntax doesn't make much sense to human beings. But if you're working at Microsoft, there's probably not much you can do if your team is using C-sharp, and that's the way it is. But in 15 years or 20 years, people are going to invent more programming languages over time. And I think where this research has is it may not benefit you and I in our generation, but I think that in 15 to 20 years, as people are inventing newer products and making newer versions of these products, it might help them over time. So, for example, on JDK 8, they added lambdas to the language. Now, I think many of us, including myself, tend to think the lambdas are probably an improvement over anonymous center classes, in part because anonymous center classes have all sorts of complexity and problems with them. But that's just my opinion. That's not that's not a scientific statement. That's just a guess. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like, why is it that in the JDK process, in the process for making these new versions of the language, why isn't that even a company as big as Oracle doesn't bother to put 20 people in a room and do a comparative study? It would be dirt easy for them to do that. And if that data was public over time, it would help a lot of people. I mean, think about it. Oracle always argues that Java's on 3 billion devices. If we're going to distribute a product to over 3 billion devices, it kind of makes sense that we've actually vetted that using scientific methods instead of just letting their engineers do whatever the hell they feel like doing. Right. That, that's why calling us engineers is an insult to engineers. <laughs> to a certain extent, yeah. yeah. I mean, right? Isn't that that's, that's hugely irresponsible in a way. Well, I mean, you know... It's not a term that I'm using. It's just the term, the name of the discipline. I mean, it's yeah. called software engineering. Yeah. That's not to say that you're not wrong because you're, you're kind of right. Yeah. 
But at the same time, like, you know, it is what it is. It's called, it's called what it is. So yeah. anyway, so the point is sometimes as an individual, there's nothing you can do, but that doesn't mean that over time, if you have influence on the language or influence on the tools or influence on other areas that you can't say to the people that do have control over those products, Hey, when you make the new version, Let's use some evidence. Let's look at the issues. Let's run a study. Let's do some analysis. Let's think about it scientifically and try to answer the questions as opposed to just believing that we're right or, or wrong. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if there's extra data that's being missed there. You know, when, when there's a feature which, let, you know, let's say there's evidence that says it makes you less productive, but you're attached to it because it really seems like it makes you happier as a developer. I mean, it seems like that isn't that fact there isn't completely data free it seems like that's saying something oh and i actually, don't know i have I, I forgot i was going to mention this so we ran one of our surveys on uh, people between zero and 10 to 15 years of experience or so in one of our surveys on uh, the intuitiveness of syntax right in other words what do people believe invariant of productivity what do people believe about their languages and we found an interesting result so we tested people we had them rate how intuitive something was on a scale from zero to 10. It's like I said, it's just a survey. No, there's nothing special about it. But then we had them do this across sets of languages. And the people that we happen to be working with were mostly new C++. So they might have had one year of experience in C++. They might have had 10. They might have had 20, somewhere around there. And what we found was that regardless of the C++ syntax we gave them, for every year of experience that they had in that language, they rated that syntax as half a point higher on this mm -hmm. Likert scale. So what that means is that developers, as they garner experience, increasingly tend to think that what they're looking at makes sense. But the problem is that belief may not be actually true. It's just a belief that's survey data. So it doesn't mean that they'll be more effective. It just means... That, you know, Bjorn Strustrup probably thinks that C++ is really intuitive, right? <laughs> every study, every result has a context around it. And when you're talking about yourself, you are your own context. Mm -hmm. If this works for you, you know what? It works for you. And it doesn't matter whether it works for someone else until you start working with another developer, getting a new person on your team. And then you start inflicting your context on them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when a new person comes in and something that seems really intuitive to us is not obvious to them, that's a good time to go to the studies and say, oh, wait, I'm the weird one here. They're mm. right. This is not actually intuitive to human beings in general. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and these studies always, too, we, we take averages, right? And then we discuss distributions. But just because you have an average and you know that it helps people across the, you know, on average, doesn't mean that any one individual might not be benefited. So, for example... If I had a particular language feature X, it could be that on average that feature is terrible for most people, but it could be that for one person somewhere that that's just the feature they need for their content. That one person that's, who that's really real. understands generics should totally write a bunch of Scala libraries. Yeah, <laughs> and actually the generics is a good example because even if generics, when you're writing generics classes, uh, even if you do get a tenfold, let's just say that that's true for the sake of argument, decrease in productivity. Well, we also know that you get a slight bump for using those libraries. So maybe that's okay. Maybe it's it's one of those features where, yeah, somebody's going to have to take a hit and write those libraries, but it's going to benefit the rest of the team. So maybe that's okay. Yeah. I just wonder if, if sometimes it means or could mean that feature X 
you know, that there's a third way that, that, that maybe feature X isn't a completely bad idea, but the way that it's, it's implemented syntax wise or the way it's presented or commonly used or something, Good you know, point. is not so great. Um, yeah, you know, it, I agree like, completely. Should we throw it away or should we try to find a third way that says, okay, how can we incorporate feature X in such a way that it improves other people's productivity the same way it improves my productivity? No, actually, you're totally right. I mean, this is actually one reason why we struggled so much with doing a Lambda study, because it's hard to know exactly what to test, right? Like, for example, some of the syntax that you see in various kinds of Lambdas in various languages, it's pretty weird and obtuse, right? Yes. At least I think so. But on the other hand, people love that feature. People really like Lambdas under a lot of conditions, or so it seems. And it seems like there's other advantages. Like in JDK 8, they have all these cool things you can do with parallelism with Lambdas, uh, and that's really cool. So do you test under that condition, or do you test like a debugging study? But what about syntax? The syntax, if it impacts anybody, it probably only influences novices, so maybe that doesn't matter as much. I'm not sure. So this is the hard part since we're such a non-evidence-based discipline. What that means is that we can't even really tell the context under the particular features would matter yet. I think with lambdas, it wouldn't surprise me if we needed 200 studies before we got a good sense of who it impacted and when. That wouldn't surprise me at all. It so, is but we have to run a matter of, of how you yeah. think. When Josh was on the show, he he loved to point out that there were studies about the intuitiveness of various types of code and font size and color scheme and Dvorak versus Kolmak versus QWERTY. And at the top, oh, yeah, yeah. and at the top of the call, you and Greg both lamented that nobody's paying attention to the data. Where is this data? I'll be that guy. I don't hmm. know, even know where this data is. Greg means something very specific when he talks about it. And in his context, he's right under what he means. So in his particular case, He's talking about data from source repositories, and he's saying that those exist now, but he doesn't mean data in the broad. If you want to talk about data from randomized controlled trials, you are totally right. It does not exist, and especially oh. on languages. So, and, and actually, you don't have to take my word for this. We've actually run what's called a meta-analysis, and this is this thing where we're, at, we're actually going back and reading all of the papers in academia. So, so far, we've read about 2,200 papers from academia to try to find the evidence that on different kinds of language features. And the short and unfortunate answer is that it largely doesn't exist, mm -hmm. right? A lot of academics don't believe this. They think that, that you, we just have to look nostalgically back at the 70s and 80s and we'll find all these wonderful studies. And it's just not true. I mean, when you actually read the papers, there's either no data or very little. So, for example, in the old, you may have heard the claim before that the small talk teams did a substantial amount of empirical data analysis on their tools. I don't know if you've heard that claim I've, or not. I've heard that. Now, if you look at the original studies, it's actually really unclear what they actually did. It's not clear whether they ran, you know, like really controlled experiments it's not clear what the evidence was. I've even asked for the data, and I can't seem to find it, right? Huh. So as, as from one scientist to another, I would say, that's weird. But, I mean, at the time, there was nothing going on in that area. So it's sort of like a diamond in the rough to a certain degree. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's almost no evidence. And then there's other conferences where there's a little bit. So there's a very uh, not well-known one at all called Empirical Studies on Programmers. Easily the best resource ever on empirical data for how programmers work. 
But no one has heard of this because it's very well, not very well known in programming language design, but it's a treasure trove. It includes some of the only studies ever on inheritance systems. It includes a direct comparison between object orientation and imperative styles, which we actually use on the Quorum project. That's why languages like Ruby or uh, Quorum or some others, you can say something like output hello world as opposed to needing to wrap it in public class, void main, you know, all this kind of crap, right? Mm -hmm. So these sort of studies can give us real insight, but there's so few of them, so few. I'll give you one last example on this like foundation of evidence issue, mm -hmm. and that is that um, if you look at even conferences dedicated to this issue supposedly, one of them is called the Psychology of Programmers Interest Group. Uh, it's a UK conference. It's a workshop, but it's academic. It's run by people at, with that have influence at Cambridge and other places in the UK. Anyway, we did a systematic analysis of all of their papers up uh, that are online, right? They, they don't have all of them online, but they have a, a good chunk of them. And we found that less than 1% of the papers were actually related to programming languages and actually used reliable data collection techniques. Wow. Less than 1% at a conference dedicated to this issue. Wow. Like the major programming language conferences, the answer is that it's effectively zero, except for the papers that we've written. So <laughs> to answer your question, there is no evidence when it comes to randomized controlled trials. Mm -hmm. But what Greg meant was that there's source code repositories, and we can probably learn a lot from them, potentially. Mm -hmm. wow. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yes, yes, it does. It does. <laughs> and it actually leads into one of my picks. Should we, should we wrap yes, up and do picks? picks. It's um, time for picks. So pick number one, trick or treatment. This is a great book. Simon Singh and Edzard Ernst. Now, if you don't know Edzard Ernst's name, he was the first tenured professor of alternative medicine in the United Kingdom. He trained as a homeopath, got tenure, and 10 years later said, okay, this stuff doesn't actually work. Hmm. The courage it takes to have put 20, 25 years of your life into something and then turn around and say, okay, on balance, looking at the evidence, I no longer believe this works, is tremendous. And the flack that he got, the, you know, Andreas gets hate mail. You should see the hate mail that people like Edzard get. But he and Simon Singh wrote a book where they go through chapter by chapter different alternative medicines like acupuncture, like homeopathy, like chiropractic. What is the evidence? Does it actually work? And it turns out that, you know, for some kinds of ailments, acupuncture can be marginally effective. There are some herbal remedies that are effective for some minor disorders. But what they're really doing is showing you how you tell the good from the bad, the true from the bogus. It's a really good book. And if one day, in my lifetime, somebody is able to write a book like that for software engineering, I'll think we've made real progress. <laughs> I'm not expecting it. But, man, it would be wonderful if we could. Uh, the second of my picks is a book called Seeing Like a State. It's nothing to do with programming except it is. <laughs> it, it, it could be half the length it is. But what James Scott is pointing out is that over and over again, large organizations of all kinds <clears throat> value uniformity over productivity. They want everybody playing by the same rules so that they can manage from the center. And that is more important than allowing people the freedom at the grassroots level to improvise and adapt. Because then, yes, they're being more productive, but you no longer have that central control. Now, the reason for this isn't just authoritarianism. It's also that the more local adaptation and local custom you allow, the more mistakes people can make. I mean, let's face it, we're all glad that civil rights legislation was introduced in the United States in the 1960s. 
that local customs were banned in certain parts. Okay? But every software development organization and every political party that I've ever been part of suffers from this effect, that we lower everybody's productivity to the point where they're interchangeable so that they can be managed. And if I had a decade and a large budget, I would go off and try to figure out how this affects software organizations. Is it necessarily the case that every large software development team has to be mediocre? Right? <laughs> right. And then the third one is code complete, which should need no introduction. And if you can find me a university software engineering course that uses that as their textbook, I'll buy you a beer. My I might actually use it just to get a beer from you. Yeah, well, there it is. You're driven evidence again. <laughs> but, but seriously, Steve McConnell knows the literature backwards and forwards. I mean, he's got it all in his head. If there's a significant paper in the last 30 years that he hasn't read and filed away in his head, I've never bumped into it. And he's just organized it all and put it down there. And that book is now 16 years old, since first edition. Changed my life when I discovered we actually knew stuff about things should be the core text in every undergrad software engineering program and isn't. Right? So if anybody listening to this podcast hasn't read it, switch off the podcast. There's nothing more important to you as a professional programmer right now than going and getting that book and finding out what we actually know. Jessica, you want to do picks? All right. So I am going to echo one of Greg's picks because it was on my list, but for a different reason. Seeing Like a State is an amazing book. And I think it's drastically changed the way I look at software, not for the same reasons Greg talked about, but because it shows why what we do is hard. Seeing Like a State talks about all the subtleties of human systems and human interactions at the local context level. It talks about all the improvisation that everyone does on a day-to-day -day basis and how in real human communities, we're constantly changing the system to adjust to a slightly different reality, to corner cases we hadn't seen before, but now we have. It's shifting and it's not well-defined. And suddenly it makes complete sense that the hardest part of software is figuring out what we want to do. That's it. It's a great book. That's awesome. Bobby? I am pickless this week. Pickless? Yeah, I slacked off. I was going to do a hot sauce pick today, and we are so over time, and the last pick I did for hot sauce went 14 minutes. <laughs> so I'm going to pick really quick. The first one is that I get to be on the show today. I've been freelancing for, oh gosh, five years pretty solidly. And uh, I went and interviewed with Cover My Meds, and they're just a fantastic team, and they're hiring. And so I'm plugging them as my first pick because they're just absolutely amazing. They're doing really good high-tech work. They're doing work that saves people's lives. And they have a no-assholes rule for people that hire on there. So if you're interested, you should uh, give them a, a shout at their website. My second picks actually are related to the show today. The first one is a really interesting bias. Like, if you want to measure something, and like, how do you determine what your placebo or your control is? And that is the fact that if you track your weight, you will lose weight. That's your weight loss plan, if you just keep track of it. Basically, it takes off of Peter Drucker's old myth, or old standby, that what gets measured gets managed. So you can't use them as your control group, because they're going to lose weight, too. So it gets kind of interesting. How do you measure somebody's weight without them knowing? Sneak in at night and weigh the bed, I guess. Andreas, do you have picks for us today? Sure. I came up with two, and of course, they're both sort of related to my area. The first one is 
an old paper that I think more software engineers or whatever word we want to say should know, and that is by Walter Tickey, and it's called Should Computer Scientists Experiment More? It was published in the late 1990s. And basically what Tiki did is he talks about this idea of what the evidence is. And this is the late 90s. And I want to just read one little quotation from him from 1998. He says, there are plenty of computer science theories that haven't been tested. For instance, functional programming, object-oriented programming, and formal methods wow. are all thought to improve program productivity, program quality, or both. It is surprising that none of these obviously important claims have ever been tested systematically, even though they're all 30 years old and a lot of effort has gone into developing programming languages and formal techniques. This was 1998, and this wasn't just his belief. He actually did a very similar type of meta-analysis to what this fellow named Andy Coate at the University of Washington did pretty recently, finding a similar result, and what we've done on the language design communities in our own work. So that's my first pick. I think people should go read Walter Tickey's fantastic paper describing this problem and also giving them some context for how long computer scientists have ignored evidence, just totally ignored it. Okay, second pick. This is on the opposite end of the spectrum. And this is a paper by Leo Marovich and Ariel Rapkin that came out of Uppsala 2013 called Empirical Analysis of Programming Language Adoption. And the reason I'm pointing this particular paper out is not because many developers might be that interested in adoption, um, but because it's an excellent example of what you can learn from a very, very rigorous evidence-based investigation into a topic. Specifically, Leo Marovich and Robkin are kind of trying to start a sociology of programming languages, or at least that's one way that I've heard Leo describe it when I've, when I've talked to him. And what's interesting about this is that we learn all sorts of stuff. And I, I won't spoil it all because some of the results are kind of surprising related to how people adopt or stop adopting functional languages and what kind of features cause languages to be adopted and stuff like that. It's, it's a fascinating read. And if people on your list haven't read it, it's just an amazing tour de force paper that is worth reading. Oh, you know, I didn't even plug it at all. You see, I'm a scientist, so I tend not to plug my own stuff. But like, we actually just released a new online version of Quorum. Mm -hmm. It's still a little bit in beta, but number one, it lets you run Quorum right on the web as sort of a, a, a JavaScript alternative, at cool. least kind of, sort of. It yeah. will get that way, at least eventually. But um, also, more than that, we also put up a bunch of video tutorials because we were accepted into the um, Hour of Code oh, that, cool. that Code.org puts up. So we've actually got all these cute little online tutorials with this high school student that is learning programming, and they're designed to be kind of fun and silly and stuff. So uh, if people that are listening want to give it a try, that'd be awesome, because when people use it, we get some data, and then if it turns out we're wrong, we change the language. That so, is awesome. They're a lot of fun, these little video tutorials and stuff, I think. But, you know, hopefully people on ye old internet will like them, too. We'll see. Yeah. So. Awesome. Cool. Well... Thank you for being on the show, Andreas. This was awesome. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. This episode is sponsored by Ninefold. Ninefold provides solid infrastructure and easy setup and deployment for your Ruby and Rails applications. 
They make it easy to scale and provide guided help in migrating your application. Go sign up at ninefold.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. 